1: This is Cornerstone Connection, the radio ministry of Pastor Gary Hamrick of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. Pastor Gary is teaching through Hebrews.
0: Real love is calling, opens up your eyes. Mercy is with
2: every sunrise. He was despised by his own family. And nevertheless, when called upon, He exercised tremendous faith in God, and God used him to gain a great victory over the Ammonites. And so, you know, what it says to me is, again, what you're going to notice in chapter 11, if you haven't already, is that God's not looking for perfect people. He's just looking for available people, people who are willing and able and available, and who are are people saying unto the Lord, you know, use me.
1: Can God count on you to be willing to do His will, even if no one else is around you? Today, as you look at Hebrews with Pastor Gary, you'll be encouraged to always have a heart that's willing to do whatever God tells you to, no matter what. He won't move through someone that isn't available for His ways, or in someone that's not ready to go when He says to go. He wants a vessel to work through and to do mighty things through. And it all starts with you being willing to follow Him, no matter what the cost. At the close of Pastor Gary's message today, I'll be sharing with you how you can get a copy of today's broadcast of Cornerstone Connection. Subscribe to the podcast or get in touch with us. But for now, let's join Pastor Gary in the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, with today's edition of Cornerstone Connection.
2: This is the fifth week. We are now in chapter 11 of Hebrews. And we've intentionally slowed it down because, I don't know if you've been encouraged, but I have as we've been looking at these names and the stories behind the names of 17 people mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11, men and women who demonstrated genuine faith. Now, we've been talking about how there's a difference between saving faith and the gift of faith and then living by faith. And what we find here in chapter 11 are examples of ordinary men and women Lived by faith, that is to say, that they demonstrated their trust in God in the face of what was commonly adverse situations. You don't need to, to really exercise too much faith or trust in God when everything's going well. How many of you understand what I'm saying? Um, but it's when things aren't going so well, it's when things are difficult, it's when things are challenging, it's when, when things look bleak that we have to just really trust God. And in the course of our lifetime, we will experience some measure of those kinds of things. And so it's in those times, in those trials, in those difficulties, that we have to just really press into God. We have to just trust Him. We have to lean on Him. And, And so these are examples of people that the writer of Hebrews has given us in chapter 11, ordinary people who have demonstrated this kind of faith. Now, In chapter 11, verse 1, it says, Faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. And as as we experience the exercise of our physical senses, we know what it is to see and to hear and to touch and to smell, but as we get older, our physical senses tend to diminish. But as we get older in the Lord, as we become more mature in the Lord, our spiritual senses... Should become more heightened as we grow in our relationship with the Lord, and therefore we can trust Him to a better degree because we then, as we live out our lives, trusting the Lord can build upon different experiences that help to encourage us to trust Him for the next thing because we see His faithfulness along the way. And so, these 17 people who are mentioned by name in chapter 11 and some other. Uh, what we call honorable mentions, who aren't mentioned by name, but the writer of Hebrews kind of summarizes a bunch of people near the end, should serve to be encouraging examples to us of people who lived ordinary lives but trusted God in extraordinary ways. And so we left off at verse 32. We don't have too much more to go in chapter 11, so I certainly hope we'll finish chapter 11 tonight, and then I hope to even get into some of chapter 12 this evening. So we've gone through our list of, uh, so far, uh, we've, we've talked about Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses' parents, Amram, Jochebed Moses himself. Last week, we talked about Rahab, and then we talked about these three last week, Gideon, Barak, and Samson. And we pick it up here in verse 32, which says, and what more shall I say? I do not have time to tell you, which is what we say. We ran out of time last week, too. I do not have time to tell you about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames, and escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength, and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. Women received back their dead, raised to life again. Others were tortured and refused to be released so that they might gain a better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging, while still others were chained and put in prison. They were stoned, they were sawed in two, they were put to death by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains and in caves and holes in the ground. These were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised. God had planned something better for us, so that only together with us would they be Made perfect. So in verse 32, where we left off with the last uh, few names, we have Gideon, Barak, Samson, and then uh, the next one on the list, number 15, is Jephthah. And so I'm going to summarize uh, the lives of these people, and, and we're going to understand a little bit about why they made it into what is commonly called the Hebrew Hall of Faith. That's what chapter 11 of Hebrews is. So is an interesting character. His, his story is found in Judges chapter 11. You don't need to turn, but I'll just summarize the events. Uh, Jephthah was an outcast of his family uh, because Jephthah was rejected by his half-brothers. He shared the same father as his half-brothers. Their father's name was Gilead. Uh, A whole area of Israel was named after him, Gilead and the Gileadites. Um, But Jephthah had a different mother because Gilead on one occasion slept with a prostitute. And the result of that encounter was Jephthah. And so his brothers mistreated him. His brothers, his half-brothers rejected him. Uh, They saw him as not really belonging to them. Because though they shared the same father, Jephthah had a different mother. She was a prostitute. Uh, The Bible is silent really about her. Some say that she was an Ishmaelite. Some say that she was just a Gentile in, in general. But we don't have any background on her other than she was a prostitute. So Jephthah's driven away by his brothers. And Jephthah goes to live in an area called Tov, which in Hebrew means good. It was considered a good area, but the name of the region was called Tov. And it was up in the northern uh, territory of Israel along the border with Syria. And during the time when Jephthah was living up in Tov, the Ammonites, some perennial enemies of the Israelites, advanced against the Israelites. And the people of Gilead, the Israelites recognize that Jephthah was a warrior. In fact, when he gets up to Tov, the Bible says that many men started to follow Jephthah. He was one of these natural-born leaders. He was just a guy who, uh, without, uh, you know, much unnecessary attraction to himself, just people were drawn to him, and that he was noted as being a, a very valiant warrior. So guess what happens when the Ammonites start to attack the Israelites? All of a sudden, the guy that they had treated as an outcast, they go after, because they know he's a valiant warrior. And so the men of Gilead, the elders of Gilead, go up to Tov, where Jephthah's living, and they persuade him to come back. Will you come back? And he, and he gives them a little pushback. He's like, oh, great, you didn't want me when, you know, you thought I was just the son of a prostitute. But now that the Ammonites are pressing against you, and, and you know I'm a pretty good warrior, you want me back? And they're like, yeah. And so he agrees and he goes back and God uses him as a mighty warrior. Now, in the course of facing the Ammonites, Jephthah makes a very foolish and unnecessary vow to God. And this this is not going to be a Bible study about that foolish vow. It just was. You can read about it in Judges chapter 11, where he makes this vow to God. He basically says, you know, God, if you will give me victory over the Ammonites, then I make this vow and I promise to do this. And and it was a foolish vow, uh, but nevertheless, he made it and he had to live up to it, but he didn't need to make that vow because God wanted to be glorified anyway. And but Jephthah asked God, "Give me the victory," and and I promise, you know, we we kind of make some of those foolish vows sometimes. You know, we're like, "Okay, God, if you get me out of this mess, I promise that I'll I'll do this." I'll do it. And then you know, we don't ever follow through. Uh, in Jephthah's case, he followed through. And it was a very tragic thing, but that's a different Bible study. The main point about Jephthah is he was considered an outcast. He he did not have um, you know a, a typical upbringing. He was rejected. He was despised by his own family. And nevertheless, when called upon, he exercised tremendous faith in God. And God used him to gain a great victory over the Ammonites. And so, you know, what it says to me is, again, what you're going to notice in chapter 11, if you haven't already, is that God's not looking for perfect people. He's just looking for available people, people who are willing and able and available and who are, who are people saying unto the Lord, you know, use me. I don't know what I really have to offer, but use me. Uh, because Jephthah comes from a family that rejected him. And, you know, again, as, as is obvious, we don't have any decision about who our parents are. You have a lot of choices in your life. But that is one choice that you did not have, who your parents were and are. And despite the fact that Jephthah comes from this family where, you know, he's an outcast and he's rejected and mom's a prostitute, your family of origin should not define you. The Lord should define you. By the way, some of you have a wonderful family of origin. I'm not disparaging your family of origin. I'm just simply saying that if you came from a wonderful family, great. It's unusual, but great. And if he came from a dysfunctional family, every family this side of the Garden of Eden is dysfunctional. And if you look at your family of origin and think, you know, I didn't really have the best upbringing, or I didn't really have the greatest advantage, or I didn't have this, or I didn't have that, or mom was this, or dad was that, or I don't even know my mom, or I don't even know my dad, or I was, you know, adopted, or whatever your story is, that's not your story. You know, your family of origin, as good as it may have been, or as difficult as it may have been, is not what ultimately defines a person. What defines a person is how much you're going to really know the Lord, and you're going to have your identity in Him, and you're going to serve Him, and you're going to have faith in Him, and you're going to allow Him to use you for His glory. And this is Jephthah's story and he trusted God in the face of adversity, and he believed God for victory, and God gave him that victory, and God used him, even though he was considered somewhat of an outcast among his own family, among his own people. So that's Jephthah. And then next in the list of Jephthah is David. So he's number 16 on the list, and David is probably, you know, the best known among this list. And um, There's only one David in the Bible, by the way. You see different names throughout the Bible where many people share the same name. There's only one David in the entire Bible. His name in Hebrew means beloved. David. If you have the name David, it means beloved. The inference is you're, you're loved of God, you're beloved of the Lord. And so David, so David, is listed here in the Hall of Faith. Now, there's no commentary about him. He's just in a string of lists with other people here. But, you know, much is known about David. And what is typically known about David is, uh, you know, what, what often is familiar about his life are his flaws. And we must be real. One of the things that is commonly understood about David is his affair with Bathsheba, that he committed adultery. Uh, what, what is also known about David, if you, if you look carefully at his life in terms of his flaws, is that he was a pretty passive father. The Bible says in 1 Kings chapter 1 that when he was old in age, one of his sons, Adonijah, decided that he was going to position himself to be the next king of Israel after his father, King David. Because Adonijah, seeing that his dad was near death, decided, I'm going to go ahead and assert myself, and I'm going to promote myself to be the next king of Israel. I'm just going to get, I'm going to choose my cabinet. I'm going to get my military generals together. I'm going to, I'm going to start to make some progress to advance myself as king. And the Bible says in first Kings chapter five, uh, one verse, verse five and six, it says now Adonijah, whose mother was Hagith put himself forward and said, I will be king. And so he got chariots and horses ready with 50 men to run ahead of him. And then there's this parenthetical comment in 1 Kings chapter 1, verse 6, it says his father, that's David, had never interfered with him by asking, why do you behave as you do? David never interfered with him. David never challenged him growing up. It's no wonder that Adonijah just kind of asserted himself and decided he was going to do what he jolly well wanted to do, and he didn't care what anybody thought, because dad never interfered with him. And ask questions growing up. Like, why do you do what you do? Why are you behaving this way? Please, parents, you have biblical permission. It's not from me. It's from God and his word. Interfere with your, with your kids. Ask questions. Now, your kids, if, you're, if they're here tonight, especially, you know, the, your teenage friends aren't going to really like what I'm saying. But interfere with their lives. It's for their good. Interfere. You, if you, have, you know, if they have a cell phone and they're on your plan, find my iPhone. Know where they are. Look, see, track them. If they're on your plan, read their texts. Oh, man, I'm making friends tonight. <laughs> I'm making... Come on, you parents ought to be saying, preach it. <laughs> you ought to be looking and interfering and asking. It's not because you're nosy, though you are. We are. We're parents. We're supposed to be nosy. It's because you love, you love your kids enough that you want to interfere. And if you see that they are on the wrong course, you want to make course correction with them. David never did that. You know what's even more tragic? The Bible says in 2 Samuel 13, when one of David's sons, Amnon, raped one of David's daughters, Tamar. Now, they were half-brother, half-sister. They had different mothers, nevertheless. David, it says, was furious, but he didn't do anything. Now, why am I pointing this out? I'm pointing this out because the flaws are not the reason why David gets mentioned in the Hebrew Hall of Faith. He gets mentioned in the Hebrew Hall of Faith because of faith, not flaws. But again, I'm trying to Bring this down to earth for all of us so that we recognize these are pretty flawed people. All right. I don't want us to read chapter 11 and think, well, these are really lofty, you know, perfect, extraordinary people. I could never exercise the kind of faith these people have because, you know, after all, these are spiritual giants. And uh, hey, they're ordinary, flawed, sinful people like you and me. There's a reason why they're listed here. They're listed so we can actually relate, so we can actually recognize, hey, if God can use a man or a woman like that, maybe God can also use me. Hey, if those people can trust God, maybe I can trust God. See how this is supposed to work. So obviously David doesn't make it in the hall of faith because of his flaws. He makes it in here because of his faith. And he was a man of faith. In fact, when we're first introduced to him, he's probably no more than anywhere from 10 to 15 years of age. And we're introduced to him because God has decided that the present king, which is Saul of Israel, first king of Israel, should be replaced. And God's replacement, his choice, is David. And so God tells the prophet Samuel to go to the house of Jesse and to anoint the next king of Israel. Jesse has eight sons. Samuel the prophet doesn't know which son is to be the next king of Israel. And so Samuel just shows up and he says to Jesse, one of your sons is to be chosen as the next king of Israel to replace Saul Would you please line them up for me so that then I'm going to go down the line one by one? And God, this is Samuel speaking. God's basically going to show me which is the son who's supposed to succeed Saul. And so Jesse, with great pride, lines up his sons in front of the prophet Samuel. And Samuel looks over each one. And he looks at one. He goes, no, you're not it. And he goes to the next one. He goes, no, you're not it. And he goes to the next one. He looks at goes, No, not it. And he keeps going down the line. Now, interestingly, what the Bible tells us is that though Jesse had eight sons, he only put seven in front of Samuel. Which son do you think he left out of the room? David. And why did he leave David out of the room? For a a variety of reasons, we can only speculate, but David's the youngest youngest. And maybe just Jesse just felt like, well, that little young kid, who's probably anywhere from 10 to 15, can't possibly be God's choice. So I'm just going to leave him out in the field. And when Samuel got through all seven sons, he said to Jesse, do you have another? Because these guys ain't it. And Jesse's like, well, come to think of it, there is that other kid. He's tending sheep out in the field. And Samuel says, I'm going to sit down right here. And we're going to wait until you get that other kid. And he brings in David. And the Bible says that he was ruddy and handsome, and that word ruddy really indicates that he was reddish and fair-skinned. So he probably had, you can see, when you go to Israel, there are some Israelis, they're not all dark-complected with black hair. Some of them actually have a fair complexion with a kind of an auburn-colored hair, and this was this is David. And, and his complexion was different, and but he was handsome, and he was young, He's 10 to 15 years of age, and Samuel the prophet gets inspired by the Holy Spirit that this is that guy. And so he anoints David with oil at a young age, but he won't assume the throne of Israel until he's 30. So David will wait anywhere from 15 years, if he's 15 when he's anointed, to more than that. 20 years, if he's like only 10 at the time that he's anointed. You know, God's timetable is not always our timetable. And so David is anointed as a very young kid. And then it's interesting because the first time then we're exposed to him in action is in 1 Samuel chapter 17 when when David and the whole story with Goliath. But he's just a young kid when all that happens, when all that goes down. And But we see his faith demonstrated even then as a very young basically teen or, or child, and so in first Samuel chapter seventeen verse thirty seven David says this to King Saul, who was still king at the time. Young David said this: "The Lord who delivered me from the power of the lion and the paw, and the, the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear, because as a shepherd he would sometimes encounter lions and, and bears i don 't know about tigers, oh my, but anyway <laughs> get it. So, but, and, and the Lord helped them to overpower those creatures. And so he says to King Saul, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine, meaning Goliath. And Saul said to David, you go and the Lord be with you. The entire Israeli army did not want to try to fight the Philistines because they were intimidated by this giant Goliath who stood over nine feet tall. And David decided as this young punk, I'm going to take him down. Not because he thought too much of himself, but because he thought a lot of God. And David realized, God's going to give me the victory. So here comes this little boy facing this big giant. And David approaches him. And in 1 Samuel 17, he says this to Goliath in verse 45. He says, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. He says, this day, the Lord will hand you over to me, and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. I mean, he's got a lot of chutzpah, doesn't he? And he says, Today I will give the carcasses of the Philistines' army to the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands. I mean, he's just, he just confronts this giant, but, but he goes in the strength of the Lord, and he just believes God, and he trusts God. And, of course, you, you know the story, and, you know, the giant is felled by, by the, you know, the sling and a stone, and God just takes down Goliath, and the Philistine army retreats, and the Israelis then chase them and slaughter them, and David cuts off Goliath's head, just like he said, and he brings it back like a trophy. I mean some of you have been like to a safari and you think it's really cool to have some you know gazelle on your uh, over your fireplace at home. Can you imagine like the head of Goliath over your fireplace at your home? And people would come into your house like, what the heck is that? Oh yeah, that was a big giant that I killed one day. Wow. Open ocean, jump in and you'll
1: find the cornerstones your connection run towards your new life. The book of Hebrews encourages its readers to stop relying on what they can do to be saved, known as living by the law. There's a better way, and it's through Jesus. Jesus came to earth and perfectly lived out His life, never wavering from the law and always showing love and kindness. He was perfect and was also the perfect sacrifice for sin. He obediently died in your place so that you wouldn't need to face the punishment your sins deserve. And all you need to do is accept it. Are you ready to take this step of faith? Jesus is ready and waiting for you to step away from your old life with loving arms wide open. If you're making a decision for your Savior today, please let us know. You can send an email to prayer at quarterstonechapel.net We'd like to encourage you to find a Bible-teaching church in your area right away. It will be a place where you can grow and learn and find the support of community, of family. You're now part of a family of faith, after all. If you happen to be in the Leesburg area, consider yourself invited to Cornerstone Chapel. We meet weekly for worship and fellowship after studying the Bible together. You'll be able to get more information at our website, cornerstoneconnection.cc, that's CornerstoneConnection.cc. That's all for today. Thanks for tuning in to Cornerstone Connection. They
0: say you're a wandering soul.
1: That you've got no place to go. But still you
0: know. still you know. You're not alone.